Well, uh, thank you all for coming today. Uh, my name is John Maniscalco. I'm the uh, Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute. And uh, today it can officially be said that the Cato Institute beat the United States Congress through discussion of the legality and wisdom of this airstrikes against ISIS. Um, but we're not the only ones to do so. Uh, while the President of the United States unilaterally decided to bomb ISIS targets in Syria at a time when um, Congress was out of session, the Parliament of the United Kingdom debated and authorized the airstrikes, which makes one wonder which country has a monarch and which country considers itself to be a constitutional republic. But the United, United Kingdom is not uh, the only country to do this. Even the uh, Turkish Parliament debated and authorized the strikes before the United States. Congress, uh, I'm sorry, the Constitution grants Congress the exclusive power to declare war. And James Madison famously said that no part of the Constitution is more wisdom to be found than the, cl the clause which confides the question of war or peace to the legislature and not to the executive department. And with that in mind, we'll hear from uh, Gene Healy on the constitutional concerns regarding the president's actions. But even if Congress debated and authorized these airstrikes, would such an action be in the United States' national interest? Would the public support yet another war in the Middle East? And is there a clearly defined mission? Chris Preble will explore those uh, questions in depth. And uh, before I turn it over to our speakers, I'll introduce them briefly. First up will be Gene Healy, who is a vice president at the Cato Institute. His research interests include um, executive power and the role of the presidency, as well as federalism and overcriminalization. He is the author of The Cult of the Presidency, America's Do Dangerous Devotion to Executive Power, and False Idol, Barack Obama and the Continuing Cult of the Presidency. He's also a weekly columnist for the uh, Washington Examiner. He holds a BA from Georgetown University and a JD from the University of Chicago Law School. He'll be followed by uh, Chris Preble, who's a Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. He's the author of several books, including The Power Problem, How American Military Dominance Makes Us Less Safe, Less Prosperous, and Less Free, and John F. Kennedy and the Missile Gap. Preble's also the lead author of Exiting Iraq, How the U.S. Must End the Occup Occupation and Renew the War Against Al-Qaeda. Uh, before joining Cato in February 2003, he taught history at St. Cloud State University and Temple University. He's also a commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy and holds a Ph.D. from history at Temple University. And with that, I'll turn it over to Gene. Thank you, John. Thank you all for being here. In the Division of Labor this morning, I'm going to talk about whether what the President's doing is legal and Chris is going to talk about whether it's a good idea. Uh, my, my task is easier. Uh, first of all, what are we doing? Uh, since early August, the President has launched a couple of hundred airstrikes on either side of the Iraq-Syria border, most of them against ISIS targets, uh, though two weeks ago he also threw 47 Tomahawk missiles at the heretofore unknown Khorasan group in Syria, which we're told threatens to bring down U.S. passenger planes by setting off explosive clothes. What are we calling what we're doing? Well, the bombing has gotten a little ahead of the branding. Uh, at this point, we're, we're going by the placeholder designation Operations in Iraq and Syria. As the Wall Street Journal reported last week, we're actually running out of cool names for the operations we launch. We, we thought about uh, Operation Infinite Resolve, apparently, uh, but we dropped that. And as you can see there, the journal is running a contest 
Flora, uh, name that military operation. Hashtag operation name. If any of you have good ideas, get on Twitter for that. What's the legal basis for this conflict to be named later? Uh, in his nationally televised address on September 10th, the president said, I have the authority to carry out this, this, what do you call it? But where that authority was supposed to come from was anything but clear, least of all, it seemed to the administration itself. Uh, after uh, several weeks of various fits and starts and trial balloons, uh, two weeks later we, we got a official statement from the president in the form of a notification under the War Powers Resolution on September 23rd. He mentions uh, several potential sources of a authority there, and I think we can group them into three separate rationales. Uh, the Commander-in-Chief and Chief Executive, constitutional rationales. Uh, then he mentions two sources of potential domestic statutory authority. Uh, Public Law uh, 107243, uh, that's the 2002 Iraq War Resolution, and 10740, the uh, authorization for the use of military force, uh, or AUMF, that Congress passed three days after 9-11 to authorize the war, the impending war in Afghanistan and an ongoing war with al-Qaeda. Let's look at all three, uh, starting with Commander-in-Chief and Chief Executive. Well, the Commander-in-Chief clause is not a particularly uh, fruitful source of authority for uh, launching a military operation. Uh, as Hamilton put it in Federalist 69, this means no more than that the President will be, quote, the first general and admiral of America's military forces. And generals and admirals have an important role, but they don't, in general, get to decide whether and with whom and where we go to war. Uh, as far as the chief executive goes, this was uh, the vesting clause, the Article I, Section 1, Clause 1, the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. This was a source of authority for uh, what you might call uh, strong Unitarians, like uh, John Yoo, the legal architect of the Bush administration's War on Terror presidency. Uh, they conjured vast military authority out of the penumbras and emanations of Article II, Section 1. One problem with that is virtually nobody from the founding era seems to have understood the executive power in that way. You go to the architect of the presidency itself, uh, Pennsylvania's James Wilson, the, the man who at the Constitutional Convention entered the, introduced the motion that the executive should consist of one person. Uh, and he said at that point that the executive power was principally the power to execute the laws. When it came to the to declaring war, um, Wilson said at the Pennsylvania ratify, Ratifying Convention, the system will not hurry us into war. It is calculated to guard against it. Uh, it will not be in the power of a single man to involve us in such distress because the important power of declaring war is vested in the legislature at large. And the framers were consistent on this point, even Alexander Hamilton. There's a series of uh, pamphlets, a series of early debates between Hamilton and Madison 
over Washington's neutrality proclamation in 1793. And Hamilton, writing as Pacificus, says, uh, it, quote, it is the province and the duty of the executive to preserve to the nation the blessings of peace. The legislature alone can interrupt them by placing the nation in a state of war. Uh, Madison, for his part, as Helvidius, uh, no part of the, I think John uh, referenced this quote before, uh, there's no, in no part of the Constitution is more wisdom to be found than in the declare war clause. Uh, he continues that were it otherwise, the trust and the temptation would be too great for any one man. So nobody thought that the president had the inherent constitutional power to launch wars at will, Congress be damned. Uh, but to be fair, the Obama administration hasn't uh, placed a great deal of emphasis on broad theories of presidential power in order to justify this latest war. Justifying war on a pure presidential power theory is for bad people like Dick Cheney and John Yoo. The Obama team tries to shy away from that sort of thing, so they've instead embarked on a somewhat desperate search for legal cover outside of Article II under authorizations for the use of military force passed by other Congresses for other wars. Who needs John Yoo when you can get what you want by torturing decades, decade-old authorizations for wars past? In the Obama theory of constitutional war powers, Congress gets a vote, but it's one vote, one Congress, one vote, one time. Eh, maybe two times. Uh, <laughs> the president identifies two possible sources of statutory authority, both over a decade old, both passed by different Congresses for different wars. One of those is the Iraq War Resolution passed in 2002 to authorize the president to disarm uh, Saddam Hussein and enforce various UN Security Council resolutions. Interestingly, in a blast from the past, uh, the Obama is not the first president to argue that old AUMFs never die. Uh, as, it, as it happens, the Bush-Cheney administration tried a similar trick in the run-up to the Iraq War 12 years ago. Uh, the, this uh, Article from the Washington Post uh, in August of 2002, uh, lawyers for President Bush have concluded he can launch an attack on Iraq without new authorization. Permission remains in force from the 1991 resolution giving Bush's father authority to wage war in the Persian Gulf. Uh, to their credit, I suppose, they dropped that argument after about a week and a half and actually sought congressional authorization. But Twelve years later, here's the Obama administration arguing that the resolution that gave us Gulf War II still has enough life left in it to support Gulf War III. What's wrong with this argument? You start with the title, uh, Authorization for the Use of Military Force Against Iraq, Resolution of 2002, and you can look at the language. You don't have to, you know, deal with the whereases in the preamble, all of which uh, deal with uh, Saddam Hussein, various offenses, the danger of weapons of mass destruction. Um, you can just look at the operative clause, which empowers the president to uh, use the armed forces as he determines to be necessary and appropriate in order to defend the national security of the United States against the continuing threat posed 
by Iraq. Uh, it doesn't, I think, read like a delegation in perpetuity, uh, allowing future presidents to wage war against any potential threat emerging from the geographical re region loosely defined. Uh, the, this war with ISIS is a war in Iraq and Syria. Uh, it isn't against Iraq or the continuing threat posed by Iraq. Iraq, the Shiite-led government of Iraq, is actually part of our coalition of the willing here. So this argument, I think, is too cute by half. Uh, and what's more, uh, in, on July 25th, two weeks uh, before the president started bombing ISIS targets in Iraq, uh, President Obama's national security advisor told Speaker Boehner that, quote, the Iraq AUMF is no longer used for any U.S. government activity and could safely be rescinded. On September 12th, a month into the bombing, uh, we got a statement from an unnamed senior admi administration official arguing that, quote, the 2002 Iraq AUMF would serve as an alternative statutory authority basis on which the president may rely for military action in Iraq. Even so, our position on the 2002 AUMF hasn't changed, and we'd like to see it repealed. You got that straight. Uh, <laughs> on to rationale three. The administration seems to have settled uh, for its primary source of legal cover on the uh, 2001 AUMF. Um, one problem with that rationale uh, to justify a war against ISIS is that core al-Qaeda has publicly denounced and excommunicated ISIS. Our unnamed senior administration official has a legal workaround for that as well. Because of the group's long-standing relationship with al-Qaeda and its position, supported by some individual members and factions of AQ-aligned groups, that it is the true inheritor of Osama bin Laden's legacy, ISIS, the argument goes, fits with, within the AUMF despite this public split between al-Qaeda's senior leadership and ISIS. That is, some time ago, they used to be friends, and many in the jihadi community think that ISIS is hot stuff. Well, it's hard to see what any of this has to do with the actual language of the AUMF. Um, ISIS certainly you know, wasn't around to plan or aid the 9-11 attacks, and it's difficult to see how they are, quote unquote, harboring uh, an organization that excommunicated them. Um, are they supposed to be uh, a so-called associated force of a group that refuses to associate with them? Or is, as some have suggested, is the legal, administration's legal theory that the torch has been passed to a new generation and ISIS is the proper successor to al-Qaeda under the AUMF? Well, either way, it doesn't really matter. As far as the administration sees it, they're covered. All of which I think leads us to a larger problem, uh, something that uh, it is long past time that Congress grappled with. Now, Obama, it's true, is hardly the first president to wage war without congressional authorization. But 
for the bulk of the 20th century, presidential wars were geographically limited in scope. They were often these frolic and detour operations, short and sharp departures from the peacetime norm. In the 21st century, we've arrived at a new normal, a war without temporal, geographical, or legal limits. War, in other words, as our default setting. The Pentagon uh, envisions a war that will go on for at least 10 or 20 more years under the AUMF. It's possible then that the AUMF will serve as the basis for President Chelsea Clinton's kill list in 2033. The droning will continue until morale improves. Recently, a report from PolitiFact, or a subdivision of PolitiFact, PunditFact, uh, evaluated a reporter's claim that Obama had bombed more countries than George W. Bush, and uh, they rated it true, but they couldn't settle on a precise number, uh, and the report included uh, the intriguing sentence that both presidents may have bombed the Philippines. <laughs> we can't be sure because under the, under the AUMF, under the way the administration, well, both administrations have interpreted the AUMF, uh, the associated forces uh, of, under the AUMF of al-Qaeda, these splinter groups, factions that we are at war with, are uh, classified information. Uh, it's information on who's on the associated forces list has been refused to Congress in, o in open session. This is war on a need-to-know basis, and we don't need to know. <laughs> President Obama gave a very, very strange speech about this, uh, kind of a disorienting speech back in May of uh, 2013 at the National Defense University. Uh, he quoted James Madison's warning that no nation could survive in the midst of continual warfare, and he added a warning of his own that a perpetual war will prove self-defeating and alter our country in troubling ways. He welcomed this debate with himself. But you know what? When you look at how far we've drifted from the vision that the framers had for the constitutional allocation of war powers, the system that would not hurry us into war, the system that was calculated to guard against it, you begin to think that it would be nice to have a real debate, perhaps in Congress itself. Thank you. Thanks, Gene. Um, thanks to everyone for coming out today. Standing room only. Looks like a playoff game. Um, and uh, thanks, as always, to our conference staff, to John Maniscalco for setting this up. I also especially want to give a shout out to uh, my interns, uh, Guan Sung Yi and Joseph Gilliam, who really helped with this presentation, which still isn't as fancy as Gene's. Um, but I do what I can um, with their help. So um, in anticipation, uh, hope really is probably a better term, that Congress will fulfill its obligation and actually debate the war that we are fighting today in Iraq and Syria. I was thinking about some questions or considerations that might come up in the course of that debate. And not, not very originally, 
I went back to one of my favorite documents from the Cold War era. In, in 1984, nearly 30 years ago, in November of, of 84, uh, at the National Press Club here in Washington, Casper uh, Weinberger, who was President Reagan's Secretary of Defense, um, outlined six tests to be considered when weighing the use of U.S. combat forces abroad. Now, you have to remember the context here. This was after the, the disastrous uh, mission in Lebanon, the bombing of the uh, Marine barracks in Beirut, uh, but it also was after the uh, attack on Grenada. So there were two kind of uh, cases that Weinberger had in mind, and these are, these are wars of choice, right? These are not a question of whether or not the United States would use force when our uh, vital national security interests are, are at risk, but more, more ambiguous cases. Um, and it's, it's a fascinating document. I actually went back. It's called The, uh, the Uses of Military Force. You can find it easy enough on the, web, on the Internet. Um, I'm not going to read all of the uh, different passages. I'll just highlight a few. The, the emphasis is actually in the original. The, uh, the, high, the underlines are in the original. This is a focus on combat troops. The first point is our vital interests or that of our allies. That's a critical consideration. Uh, we should commit to the mission wholeheartedly as a country. Uh, that seems fairly reasonable, fairly, fairly uh, obvious. Uh, again, this is kind of one of the outgrowths of the Vietnam conflict where the argument was we went to war without really the will to, to carry it through to its conclusion. Uh, another point is that we should have uh, clearly defined political and military objectives that we should continually reassess our objectives and the forces that we have committed to achieve them, that we have uh, the support of the public and the Congress. And the last point, I, I always emphasize this, it seems a little banal, but it, it, it bears repeating. Um, you know, we, we don't commit U.S. forces to combat unless, except in a last resort. And again, this is the one of the great benefits that we, the United States, have that other countries don't have, that we have this extraordinary security that we sometimes take for granted. And, and, uh, and so we have the luxury of choice, which other countries don't have. So and these ideas, these concepts, have, have uh, persisted through the years after the end of the Cold War. It turns out we, we now know that Weinberger's military aide at the time was Colin Powell. Uh, he played a key role in drafting the speech that Weinberger gave in 1984, and then uh, General Powell himself articulated a similar set of rules when he was uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And so these criteria loosely, or criteria like them, are often referred to as the Weinberger-Powell Doctrine. Um, a few years ago, in my book, The Power Problem, which John mentioned, I came up with my own list, and I borrowed liberally uh, from the Weinberger-Powell Doctrine. And I just want to lay those out for you briefly. Again, you'll see some clear parallels between uh, the four that I lay out. I just had four. He had six. But there, there are some similarities. Uh, I do think that there should be a compelling U.S. national interest, security interest at stake. Um, I think there should be strong public support. And I think that strong public support should be manifest in a congressional debate and a congressional authorization, at least, uh, ideally, a declaration of war. It's a rather old-fashioned concept, but it's, uh, it's still on the books, after all. Um, the mission should be uh, defined, clearly defined, understandable, and reasonably attainable. We kind of understand what we're trying to achieve and whether or not we can achieve it. And lastly, uh, again, the, the last resort argument. Um, 
So I lay those out there, and again, I, I always, I've used these in the past, and I say to people, if you don't like these criteria, you think they're too stringent, uh, that's fine, come up with your own. But, you know, somewhere along the line, we should assess uh, whether or not going to war is a good idea in the first place. And, and, and so setting out some sort of criteria seems to make sense. So the question is, how uh, does the current ongoing missions in Iraq and Syria measure up against these criteria? Well, the first one is a compelling U.S. national security interest. And here I think you can see two, two sorts of approaches. Uh, on the one hand, Senator Dianne Feinstein wrote uh, an op-ed in the USA Today and really focused on ISIS's sheer brutality, their, their barbarism, and made a few comments about their relative effectiveness in seizing territory in Iraq and Syria. Uh, and, and therefore, uh, the implication clearly was that this group, ISIS, posed a clear and compelling uh, threat to U.S. national security interests. On the other hand, uh, Secretary Jay Johnson from the DHS, he really f focused on what information the intelligence community had about uh, both ISIS's intentions to attack the United States directly and also their capabilities to do so. And there are a number of other quotes that I, I could show up here. I just picked two. Uh, the point being that I think it is that ISIS poses some threat to the United States, some security threat, but not a particularly grave one and certainly not an existential threat. I think we've gotten away from that sort of language. I certainly hope so. So it's a debatable point. Is there a clear, compelling U.S. national security interest at stake? Uh, well, Again, we can debate that, and let's debate that. Uh, the second point is, is public support. Is there strong public support? Well, it depends. So the first thing to note is that nearly three out of every four Americans favor airstrikes against ISIS. Uh, in both, and again, as the question is worded, this is one of the recent questions from just the end of last month. There are other questions that have been asked, but the point is, there is an emphasis on both, both Iraq and Syria. And John referenced the debate, of course, that the, the debate that has gone on in other countries has really tried to differentiate between attacking targets in Iraq and attacking targets in Syria. We can talk about why that is in the Q&A. Uh, but the way this question was asked to this sample of the American people, it clearly explains this is not just attacks in, in Iraq, but attacks in S Iraq and Syria. So nearly three out of every four Americans favor airstrikes. But uh, six out of 10 oppose the use of US ground troops in Iraq and Syria. Now, this is not really so surprising, right? You call it what you will, uh, the bitter memories of uh, the wars in Afghanistan and especially in Iraq. Um, it's not so surprising the American people are not particularly enthusiastic about another major ground war in Iraq or a new or an additional ground war in Syria. Uh, the one in Iraq, Afghanistan is obviously still going on. Um, so this is where the public is on this question about what we're doing and how we go about doing it. And so the real question is whether uh, an air-only campaign can accomplish what President Obama set out to do, has set out to do. And so this is the next question. Is there a clearly defined mission? Well, um, in his speech on September 10th, he suggested that 
an air-only campaign could both degrade and ultimately destroy ISIL. Now, he said it was a comprehensive and sustained counterterrorism strategy, as it says, but he also said, and this was the, this got at least as much attention in the media as anything else he said in the speech, we will not get dragged into another ground war in Iraq. So the President's uh, statements uh, to the American public was that he thought we could degrade and, and ultimately destroy ISIL uh, from the air with, of course, assistance of those forces on the ground. Now, it turns out not so fast, in fact, just this morning, uh, the Washington Post is reporting that uh, retired Marine General John Allen, who's President Obama's special envoy to coordinate the interagency to deal with the interagency process effort against the Islamic State. Uh, General Allen has directed uh, that everyone should stop using the word destroy when describing the mission. Uh, he said the word was too imprecise. Uh, degrade is better. Uh, the Post, as an aside, says he might also have said it's impossible to do this. Uh, but, but anyway, uh, the president has said destroy. General Allen has said, nah, let's not use that word. So there's some debate even within the administration. Um, among senior military officers, uh, there is also some debate, disagreement, uh, not per se with the president, but, but kind of <coughs> clarifying what this mission is likely to look like and who's likely to carry it out. I've paraphrased here a little bit, but General Dempsey, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, he said, you know, if, there are threat, if, the, if the coalition that has been assembled on the ground to uh, where our airstrikes are assisting the, the coalition on the ground, if this coalition fails and there are threats to the United States, then he certainly would go back to the president and make a recommendation that may include the use of ground forces. Uh, the following day, General Odierno, the uh, Army Chief of Staff, um, he, he emphasized you've got to have ground forces that are capable of going in and routing, rooting them out, that is ISIS, but it's very clear uh, both in the kind of the context of General Odierno's remarks and, and what else has been said, that he wasn't talking about U.S. ground forces. He really was placing quite a bit of emphasis, as General Dempsey had, on the ground forces there, the, the uh, forces in the region. Uh, so there's still a question. Uh, if there must be boots on the ground, must they be American boots? Uh, and as I say, some say not necessarily, or at least in the case of General Dempsey, wait and see. Um, on the other hand, others are equally convinced that only U.S. combat troops, U.S. combat troops, only U.S. combat troops, uh, can accomplish the mission and that their uh, need is urgent. It is urgently required now in both Iraq and Syria, not wait and see, not wait and see if the forces on the ground there can deal with this problem. Uh, Senator uh, Lindsey Graham on the 14th of September, uh, Ambassador John Bolton on the 15th, uh, and most recently Senator Graham today in the Wall Street Journal uh, with Senator McCain uh, again making the case uh, that this mission cannot be done uh, from the air, and this is a quick quote from that article, which again, just, I just uh, read a few hours ago. Uh, Mr. Obama's political goal, uh, this is what Senators McCain and Graham say, uh, the political goal, a transition from Assad to an inclusive, sustainable political order in Syria. This goal will require the U.S. to militarily degrade the Assad regime, upgrade the moderate opposition, change the momentum of the conflict, and create conditions for a political solution, and the clear implication uh, from this is that means a much more uh, uh, a much heavier U.S. presence than what is currently 
under consideration. Again, this is a debatable point. Others aren't so sure. I refer you to uh, Walter Pincus's column in the, in the Washington Post, which comes to a different conclusion, for example. So this is, again, a debatable point, one worth debating. Um, the last one is, is this a last resort? And it gets a little bit to what I've already said. Um, is this particular war of choice, these particular wars of choice, maybe we should define it by the number of countries that we're bombing, uh, is it essential to U.S. national security? Uh, do we not have other options yet, aside from U.S. combat troops? Again, could this be prosecuted from the air in support of others on the ground? Uh, or is there no other alternative than to right now send uh, more, send U.S. combat troops, more than simply advisors, more than simply people helping direct the strikes on the ground, uh, perhaps tens of thousands of U.S. combat troops into Syria and back into Iraq. Uh, again, a couple different statements suggesting that's not yet the case. Uh, General Dempsey from late August and Secretary Kerry from middle of last month is that there is still uh, the expectation that the countries in the region and the countries who are most directly affected, threatened by ISIS, uh, still have the most at stake and therefore will do most of the heavy lifting. So to return to my four rules, um, is there a compelling U.S. national security interest? Again, I think this is a debatable point, one that is worth debating. We can talk about the nature of the ISIS regime, not merely their barbarity, which no one disputes, but their uh, capacity for carrying out uh, additional attacks and perhaps even uh, their intentions and their capabilities for attacking us here in the United States. I think that is a debatable point and continues to be debated. So let's throw that in the mix. Uh, is there strong public support? Well, uh, yes, but there is strong public support for punishing ISIS for that mission, which seems perfectly reasonable given the circumstances, but not the mission that we appear to be embarked on, which is to change the political order in two countries, or at least one, and to uh, shift the political order in Iraq, uh, if not outright change it. Uh, and this gets to the third point, uh, is the mission clearly defined and reasonably attainable? And I say no. Uh, because of the strong public support that is uh, the public, public opposition to ground forces, which was expressed so clearly in the poll that I showed, but not just that one and others. Uh, and finally, is this a last resort? I think not, uh, partly for the reasons that I, I've laid out. Um, so again, I've used these sorts of criteria many times in the past. Um, they're not particularly original, uh, and I don't intend them to be, right? The point is, that they don't need to be particularly original. Uh, there are criteria that we as a country have used in the past to judge whether or not uh, uh, U.S. combat forces should be engaged uh, in uh, military operations abroad. Uh, and it's really incumbent upon uh, the American people and ultimately their representatives in Congress to have that debate, to debate these questions. Uh, again, if they don't like the criteria that I've come up with or uh, similar criteria as those as Casper Weinberger and Colin Powell, that's fine. They can come up with their own. Uh, but these seem to be some pretty obvious questions, and I would hope that we would hear those questions uh, in a thoroughgoing debate in Congress over the wars in Iraq and Syria. Thank you all for your attention, and uh, next. Thank you. Thank you.